0: Amen, please be seated Now last week, Robin Sidser from Chalmers Church preached a, a wonderful sermon here But he kind of ran out of time And he issued a challenge to myself and Sinkler to do the difficult bit So, um, Sinkler's run away So, <laughs> I'm going to have a go 1 um, Thessalonians chapter 5 And I want to read from verse 12, but we're going to look at verses 16 to 22. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers, warn those who are idle, encourage the timid, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong but always trying to be kind to each other and to everyone else. Be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not put out the Spirit's fire, do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything, hold on to the good, avoid every kind of evil. Now we we'll look at these words. Um, can I say that we do, uh, as Stuart mentioned, we do hope to have uh, an evening service, and uh, Courtney McConnell, who is a scripture union worker, uh, will be at that service and uh, Craig will also uh, be preaching when we 're going to look at here this what it is to be a spirit filled Christian and to be a spirit filled church and it may be that you 're here and you 're not normally in this church or not normally in any church, and you wonder how this applies. Well, let me put it this way. It applies in terms of happiness. What makes us happy? What makes us smile? Um, your child announcing that you're pregnant in the middle of church, that's, that's, that makes some people smile anyway. Apologies for that, um, especially with the microphone on. But uh, there are different kinds of happiness. Happiness. You know the story of the 17-year-old girl from Glasgow? She uh, won a million pounds on the lottery, and there's. if you've ever seen the wee documentary about her, she phones up and you know, says, what's happened? She said, oh, you've won a million pounds. She says, what do I do now? You know, And I loved, more than anyone, I loved what her granny said, which was just pure, if you're from Glasgow, it was pure gallus Glasgow. It was just uh, incredible. Her granny said, um, I'll bear not do the accent, but she said, "You know, a million pounds. You're giving her a million pounds for nothing. That's like giving her a loaded gun." And I, I just thought she was very, very, very perceptive, because that's what happened. The kid had a hard, hard time winning a million. You think a million pounds would make you happy? Um, just before I came out this morning, I got an email from an attorney somewhere in Nigeria telling me that um, uh, uh, his client, Mr. B, who had the same surname as me, which is interesting, because my name is Robertson, but anyway, uh, his client, Mr. B, had left $11,480,000 for me, which was incredibly nice, and I I love the precision and detail of it, and uh, I have to admit, that would make me happy uh, for a while. But not really, this joy that we are supposed to experience. Now, isn't it interesting that in reading through the Psalms, we read this Psalm which says, darkness is my only friend. How can you have that joy? How can you be in a church? I remember somebody came into this church once and I said, why are you here? And they said, because you let me be miserable, which I thought was a great advert for the free church. Um, and, and, and I remember her saying to me, please don't laugh because I really struggle with depression and I'm, I'm glad to be in a church that allows me to be depressed. And there are some of you who are going to be sad today you're going to hear about joy and i don't want you to think that the message is cheer up clap your hands and you know that's it that's not what's being said this is about joy and it's about joy in the midst of pain as well so uh let's look at this first of all the character of the christian Um, Be joyful always If we go on to the first verses there You see the first principles for the spirit filled Christian Rejoice always There is a right and proper place For the expression of joyful emotion It's not wrong to clap your hands It's not wrong to raise your hands It's not wrong to express joy In whatever way that you express joy But the difficult thing about this command is It says rejoice always now it's not saying smile always, it's not saying be cheerful always, but rejoice always. Why? Why is joy so important? And it's, we know that it's far deeper than just being happy at any one point. Well, because joy is a fruit of the Spirit. Because as Paul says in Romans 14, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So joy is of the essence of New Testament Christianity. But let's be honest. For some of you here as Christians, and I will put myself in this category, I know that that's true, but also joy is not something. I, I, this command, rejoice always, is, is one that I don't do. So what stops our joy? Well, let me list I think four things that stop our joy. One, of course, they all begin with the letter S. One is sin, which it wipes out our joy because it's the antithesis of the fruit of the Spirit. Because when we sin and when we turn against God, then it takes away the joy of the Lord. And there are some of you who are, struggle with the whole concept of joy because you're not willing to repent of sin, you're not willing to let go of sin, and you're holding on to sinful attitudes. And Joy and sin just do not go together. Tied in with that is the second thing, and that's self, self self-absorption. We look for joy only within ourselves. We look for what makes us happy. We look for what we can get and what we feel and what we want. And the trouble is, if you were to come to church looking for joy, oh, I'd like to come to church, I want to find some joy, um, you won't find it. Why? Because you need to look for Christ. And then the joy comes from that. So often we're looking for a particular feeling. And it just doesn't work for us. And I think it's because it is about ourselves. Ironically, the thing that stops me being happy or joyful is me. Self. Self. The third thing is what I'm going to call sowing, Psalm 126. Those who sow in tears reap with songs of joy. We don't reap the fruit, if you like, of the Spirit because we don't sow. So we we wonder why God is not blessing us. We wonder why we're not experiencing so many different things. And we just don't do the hard work. We just, we, we don't sow in terms of the gospel, we don't sow in terms of, of the church. Do you know how hard it is to build a church? Paul says to the Galatians, beginning with you again, it's like going back to the pains of childbirth. And I'm not an expert in the pains of childbirth, but it's painful. And growing a church and being part of a living church One of the phrases that stuck from last week with me was Robin talking about cost and joy, cost and joy, cost and joy. And some of you don't experience any joy because you're not prepared to pay any cost. And yet it's costful. We, We sow, we sow in tears and we reap with songs of joy. I always think when people offer a seminar on evangelism or something and they say this is how to do it and this is how you can benefit from and this is how you'll grow your church. And I I always want to go, you know, but you sow in tears. It's not that easy. And then the fourth thing I think stops our joy. Sin, self-sowing, suffering. Because you see, rejoice always. it's a bit surprising that it comes from Paul. See, when we think of joy, you might think of somebody... I'll not name anyone in this congregation, but you might think of someone you know who's effervescent and bubbly and full of life, and they've got so much to be joyful about. You probably don't think about the woman who's lost her husband, or about the person who's struggling at work, or someone who's waiting, or has just been told the result of that scan you don't associate that with joy. And Paul was associated with suffering. So for example, Second Corinthians 12 verse 10, that is why for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And that's a great emphasis in the Bible. This paradox you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. Though you have not seen him, you love him, and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. That's about Jesus, Peter, 1 Peter one eight, and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Peter writes to people who are being battered right, left, and center. Absolutely battered. And he says you are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. So what we're talking about here is not personality and character. It's not so much the, the good things that happen to us, the kind of good feeling that you get when you hear some good news or uh, when you've just had a really nice meal or when you're warm. Um, it's not that kind of thing. It's, it's a joy which is able to continue even when it's tested in the most severe pain. So it's a joy that involves tears. Now, please be very, very careful here. Paul is not saying that you're going to get to a state in your life where the most horrible things will happen and it doesn't hurt you at all. He's saying that in the midst of the most severe hurt, you will still be able to know and experience the joy of the Lord. And that's the key. John 16, Jesus says, now's your time of grief. But I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. So joy is associated with the presence of Christ. I read, um, I can't even remember who it was, but I just thought it was a a, a lovely picture. Say, describing the life of a non-Christian in this world. As being like somebody who goes into the finest restaurant and has no taste buds. And I think that that is, for the Christian, what we've got is, when we know Christ, then we are able to enjoy all the good things that God has given us in this life. But when some of these good things are taken away, we are still able to enjoy Christ. Because of his presence. I will see you again and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. So, without being trite and without being trivial, I want to suggest to you that as a Christian, if you are not experiencing joy, there's something wrong. And it's part of the righteousness and the kingdom of God and the peace of God that Christ wants us to know joy and we know that by his presence and that's why the second thing that's said there is pray continually again it's the always rejoice always pray always rejoice in the Lord always I will say it again rejoice says Paul Philippians 4 4 which we sang Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near, he continues. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I think the number one reason that I don't experience the joy of the Lord all the time is that I don't obey this command to pray. And pray always doesn't mean that you're constantly walking around talking words. It's about an attitude that we are constantly in prayer and it's so easy to let go of that. Paul again, Romans 12:12 12, 12, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Lightfoot says it's not the moving of the lips but in the elevation of the heart to God that the essence of prayer consists. So we are to be a people who pray continually a rejoicing people and a prayerful people. And that is always, always the, the heart of the congregation. My friend David Meredith, was here a few weeks ago, said how much he enjoyed being here, but he said it wasn't so much the full church, it was the wee prayer meeting beforehand. That's where your joy is. Your joy is in praying with people. Your joy is in sharing with people. And if you listen to what Robin said last week, that includes praying with people who are really suffering. Stuart, who's leading, told me of being in Charlotte Chapel last week, and that's a church of 700 plus people. And listen to this, four people who didn't know him came up and introduced themselves to him in a church that size. Don't say a big church shouldn't welcome or can't welcome people because people don't know. They were looking out. We had somebody here a couple of weeks ago who was invited out for a meal with someone in the congregation And the next week was invited out again and said to me, in 10 years, in visiting churches, they'd never been invited for a meal. It's awful. And I think that we are to be a people who we pray continually, we pray together and we share together. What Stuart said also was that one of the people spoke to him and said, is there anything I can pray for you? Not just... Um, Robin's favorite, let's talk about the cold snap. But is there anything that I can pray for you? Well, there's something to ask. Pray continually. Rejoice always. Pray continually. And notice, give thanks in all circumstances. Why the give thanks? Because as Hendrickson says, when a person prays without giving thanks, he's clipped the wings of prayer so that it cannot rise. Because prayer cannot just be our pouring out our heart full of our complaints to God because what happens then is if we pray a prayer like that, it's again just about us. It's not that we shouldn't tell God how we feel and it's not that we shouldn't ask why and it's not that we shouldn't pour out our hearts. But if it's all just about ourselves, then our prayer is wrong and that's why the Lord's Prayer is such a good pattern. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven before you get to the give us this day our daily bread. We just go straight in. Lord, this is what's wrong with me. This is what I need. This is what I want. But give thanks in all circumstances. And if we're not thankful, does that not indicate that there's something wrong with our hearts? Like the child who's not thankful for their food or their parents or their presence or whatever, just assumes there's something wrong. And notice again, give thanks in all circumstances. rejoice always, pray always, give thanks in all circumstances, including the affliction. How easy it is to give thanks when your belly is full, when your health is good, when your job is working well, when your relationships are all fine, when your church is being blessed. But in all circumstances, to give thanks. It's not easy. It's not easy, but that's what God wants. Look, this is the will of God for you. He wants his people to be joyful, prayerful, and thankful. It's an interesting thing that I, I thought I knew this and I didn't know this. I'm looking at this. The word for joy in the Greek is the root word also for forgiveness, thankfulness, and the gifts of the Spirit. They all stem from that word. And that's why joy is not a peripheral in the Christian life. It is, or the, the church, it is something that is, of the absolute essence to our lives. And I want to say to those of you who are not Christians that the Christian life isn't easy and it doesn't always make you happy and it won't always make you healthy or wealthy, but it will bring you this joy. And even those of us who are Christians who've lost it, we can uh, regain it as we'll see. But let's go on to the, the next couple of verses. Um, Do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. If you wanted a commentary on this, I guess 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14. But here, this is a, a a very interesting phrase. It's a very controversial verse because of how people understand it. The connection, it's not... Disconnected. The connection is that joy is a fruit of the spirit. And now he's talking about the spirit. And he does two things. He talks about the spirit in general, the Holy Spirit of God, quenching the spirit. And then he talks about one particular aspect of the spirit's ministry, prophecy. Who's the Holy Spirit? We believe in God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Jesus the Son promised in fact, he said it was better that he went away. And I still find that a very difficult thing to grasp because imagine if Jesus was physically present with us just now. But he actually said to the disciples, it's better for you if I go away. Not to test you, but because I'm going to send you another, a counselor, the comforter, the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is not an it. That's very, very important. He, it's personal spirit is not the force. And the spirit or the work of the spirit doesn't necessarily mean um, lots of excitement and lots of dramatic miracles, though that can be part of it. But basically, God's spirit is the one who works in our hearts so that we can believe, is the one who takes the Bible, which would be dry as dust, if the spirit wasn't applied. so the one who enlivens our worship. Is the one for whom when Jesus says. Where two or three are gathered in my name. There I am in the midst. That is the spirit. And without the spirit. We're dead. Without the spirit. Our worship is useless and pointless. And here is the absolute astonishing thing. If the spirit is God. How can you quench the spirit? And the word that's used. Is a very evocative word. Because it's the word that's used for putting out a fire. And if you think of the spirit coming on the day of Pentecost. And there were tongues of fire. Then this is the idea. That somehow we're able to take a jug of water. And pour it over the Holy Spirit. Or the Spirit's fire. And quench the Spirit. Now I, I'm not sure. That I know of any more frightening verse. In the whole Bible. I like the Calvinist doctrine, which is biblical, of the irresistibility of the spirit, God's spirit at work, but the notion that we could quench. But that's shot through the New Testament, Romans twelve eleven: never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. The very fact that that has to be commanded indicates that we can lose it. 2 Timothy 1, 6 For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Paul says it's there, you've got this in you, it's an ember, but you need to fan it into flame. We go home on a Sunday night, we have the coal fire on a Sunday, the only day we have it, and you know, Annabelle and I are both absolute experts in doing the fire, and we both disagree completely about how it should be done. So we have a wee competition, we go home, and if Annabelle's put the coal on the fire her way, Uh, I'm going in and I'm looking and saying, let's see if it's alive or dead by the time we get home. I'm almost tempted sometimes to preach a longer sermon just to make sure it is dead so that I could be right. But you go in and sometimes, and more often than not, actually, it's when it's done the way I do it, and I confess that, it's almost gone. It's almost out. So what do you do? You put on a couple of sticks and a bit of coal and you get an old-fashioned newspaper, a big one, a proper broadsheet and put it across. And then, well, Anyway, those of you, you try not to set it on fire, but it, you fan it into flame. You get it going. And that's what Paul says to Timothy about his gift. Fan it into flame. It's, it's, it's gone dormant. Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Do not grieve. The Spirit is personal. Do not hurt or wound the spirit. Do not quench the spirit. And I wonder how many of us do not experience joy because by our pride and our arrogance, by our self-absorption, we have quenched the spirit. I love Calvin's wee phrase on this, commenting on this. He says, be enlightened by the spirit of God. See that you do not lose that light through your ingratitude. Lack of thankfulness quenches the spirit. Lack of prayerfulness quenches the spirit. And I think if you were to go back through First Thessalonians, in fact, even the, the earlier part of this chapter and the bits that Robin mentioned last week, you'd find things like despondency and immorality and idleness quench the spirit. It's an awful thing. It's an awful thing. Robin said with very strong confidence last week and it was good for him to hear him say it because he was very strong about other things that, that you know, you might not think so positive. But he said, this is a congregation in which the spirit is at work. Well, I hope so. And I believe so, actually. And whatever congregation you're from, I pray that that is the case. But it's also very easy to quench the spirit. In a very... Um, reflective mood at the moment and I was thinking about a time in the, the history of this congregation while we've been here in the past twenty five years, I think of one year where I couldn't work out what was wrong. I couldn't work out what was happening. I couldn't work out why things were always so difficult and, and I couldn't work out why it felt so dead and I hadn't experienced that for a long, long time. And it was it was a real struggle and then um, we, we prayed, we asked God to show and, and God did and it was dramatic and it was horrible. But something had been quenching the spirit. It doesn't matter particularly what it was. It was just it was something within the fellowship had, had quenched God's spirit. And we need to be aware of that. We need to be careful of that, not in a, in a how will I put it, not in a crippling fear kind of way, but in a, in a sense that we are sensitive to one another and sensitive to God's spirit at work in our midst. So how do we do that? Well, that's where the second bit comes in. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. This is almost certainly a church, if you read through 1 Thessalonians, that had had a bad experience of prophecy. People were making prophecies, particularly about the second coming, and they were getting it wrong. And that happens a lot. Uh, I have no idea how many people have told me, you know, like, I remember when Saddam Hussein was the Antichrist. Um, I don't remember when Napoleon was the Antichrist, but I did read about that. Um, you, all the things that are going to happen. Somebody once actually asked me and got really upset when I laughed. Well, you know, do you think Richard Dawkins is the Antichrist? And no, I'm sorry, I don't think Richard Dawkins is the Antichrist. Is Barack Obama? No, no, Barack Obama is not the Antichrist. You know, I once joked that Bill Gates was and the person took it seriously. I said Anyone who uses Microsoft, you're tools of the devil and, and they, they really believed. I said, Whoa, back off. That was a joke. But they were, you know, people always want to do this. They always come and kind of say, I, I believe that this is the time. And if, if you're a prophet and you stand up in a church and say, this is going to happen and that's going to happen. And if you want to sell a lot of books, write one that says the world's going to end, uh, usually best to make it in five years time. though why would you want to sell a lot of books if the world's going to end? I, never mind. But anyway, that's what they do. And I think that's what was happening here. Now, when we talk about prophecy, 1 Corinthians 14:29, two or three prophets should speak and the others should weigh carefully what is said. There's a prophecy in the Bible that's inspired direct utterance where somebody speaks and it is not them speaking, it is the Holy Spirit speaking. And it's often in the first person, I the Lord am with you and so on. Now, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And um, there are those who would argue that, having got that apostolic foundation, we don't rebuild the foundation. We don't have apostles and prophets as they did in the New Testament church. We certainly don't have apostles because they were the twelve plus Paul. There's a different kind of apostleship uh, that you can see, and I would argue that still exists. But we we do not have the twelve apostles. And in a sense, we don't have prophets like that because we have something they didn't have. We have the New Testament. The New Testament church did not have the New Testament. And that's very, very important to remember. So it could be that Paul is speaking into this particular context and is just saying those who've got this gift of, of direct utterance from God, you need to test them, yes, but... You know, this is what he's, he's speaking about. He's saying don't despise that. Well, here's the difficulty, I think, for us. We don't add to Scripture. Second Thessalonians is not going to be followed by First St. Peter's or whatever it is. We don't add to Scripture. The Scripture is final and the Scripture is complete. Is there still, though, um, prophecy... In the sense of a little bit like words of knowledge, now I have to be careful here, so i 'll offer this to you as a suggestion. I think of uh, someone like um, annabelle 's father, who, when uh, Andrew was due to be born, pronounced that it would be a boy didn 't know this, and that he would be called after him ustian and and so on and uh, uh, Annabel's mother said, don't be daft. Annabelle's boy, and Andrew's middle name is Ustian. There you go, I've told you that now. Ustian, which is Gaelic for Hugh. Is that a prophecy? What about Mr. Brown? An elderly man in the Brethren, so you don't get sounder than the Brethren, right? Who stood up when, I don't remember any of this, but who stood up in public in a church meeting when uh, we left the Cotswolds to move up north. My dad was a farm worker and he announced of this eight-year-old boy that David, in brethren terms, will be a missionary because they don't have ministers, you know, but just call, He said, you know, he said, I have, no, I have no doubt whatsoever. And he says, I will pray every single day that this is what is going to happen. And my father took that as a personal comfort when I turned away from the Lord as a teenager for a few years. He just remembered that. Is, is, that, is that possible? Or I think of a lady called Barbara up in Brora, who we called the prophetess, a godly woman, a prayerful woman. And she would phone me up and she would say, David, I think you should go and see so-and-so because I've been praying about them and this. And you know this, nine times out of ten, I would go. In fact, I would nearly always go because uh, I was afraid of Barbara, but <laughs> wasn't fear of the Lord. Do um, you know there was only once she got it wrong, and I was so glad when she got it wrong because I couldn't wait to go around and tell her you got it wrong and that and she, she wasn't infallible. But she was a godly, good woman. Well, are we saying that the, the Holy Spirit can't do that? I, I, think I think it's wrong to limit God to say, because Scripture is finished, God cannot give words to people. Of course, He can. It's the Holy Spirit, He can do as He pleases. So the direct revelation in the sense of God giving us scripture has ended. He doesn't give us scripture. But these words that were here, they were were to be tested. And I think that that is, um, in saying don't despise it, test them. However, having said that in the prophecy, and this is why Robin was so keen to hand it on, um, don't treat prophecies with contempt. You need to be really careful. Because there are people who will stand up and because they, 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 they will say, look, this is what I feel, except they won't say that. They'll say, this is what God says, and it's what they feel. And no, no, no. Don't claim to be a prophet. And this verse, I don't think, is primarily even referring to that. Why? I'll use Calvin again. By the term prophecy, he says, I do not understand the gift of foretelling the future, but as in 1 Corinthians fourteen three, the science of interpreting scripture, so that a prophet is an interpreter of the will of God. And it's clear there that prophecy in that sense is someone who speaks the word of God, who holds forth the word of God, and the primary thing that the prophets did in the Bible was exhort the people to follow the word of God. So in Acts 15:32, Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. Now in that sense, when Robin was here last week, he was a prophet. And I think what he said to us, we need to take really seriously. He made some observations and some comments. And I think he was a gift from God from us. I think it was a prophetic thing. Now, we test it because Robin Sidsurf is not infallible. And no human being is infallible. But I think we neglect the ministry of the prophetic. And um, When some of you who are charismatics started coming here, you were a bit wary in this church, you know, because we weren't weird. I um, sorry, we were weird. <laughs> in your terms, we were weird. Um, in our terms, you weren't weird. Um, but I remember being asked, what kind of preaching do you do? And I said, I do prophetic preaching, which you have to be careful how you say that because it can sound like pathetic. But I said, we do, we do prophetic preaching. Why? Because you see, sometimes people come from a charismatic context where the Bible is the word of God. Fine, 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 the Bible is the Bible and it's good for illustrations. But the real word of God is what God says through the person who gets the direct revelation from God. No, the real word of God is this. Absolutely. Because the word of God cannot be wrong. The person speaking a word can be wrong. And that's why what he's saying here is if you want to be a spirit-filled church... You need to make sure that whoever speaks or teaches, and I'm talking about the Sunday school teachers, and I'm talking about the elders in the house groups, I'm talking about people who lead the women's Bible study, everyone, because you had uh, women prophetesses as well, Peter, Philip's uh, daughters, four of them were prophetesses, that anyone who teaches God's word, anyone who exhorts from God's word, is to be tested and to make sure that they teach from the word of God and they teach the word of God. And that's what the test is. Test them all. The NIV is right to put those together. Sometimes people just take that test everything and hold on to good and avoid evil. But it's in the context of prophecy. It's in the context of teaching the word of God. And so quenching the spirit happens when the word of God is held in contempt Quenching the spirit occurs even amongst people who say that they're filled with the spirit when they put aside the Bible or when they ignore the Bible or when they excuse the Bible or when they deviate away from the Bible. We are told there will be false prophets in the church. Even out of your own number there will arise those who will lead people away. And so the message here is not primarily about a style of, of um, prophetic utterance. The message here is one about a church not quenching the spirit by distorting, perverting, turning away from God's word. That's why it's so vital to the health of the church, for the joy of the church, to have spirit-filled preaching and teaching. And that's why the person who says, you're a word-based church, we're a spirit-filled church, is wrong, because you cannot be a spirit-filled church without the word. And anyone who says, we're a word-based church, but we just don't do the the spirit so much, that's wrong, because how can you teach the word without the spirit? How can you do that? Test everything does not mean try everything once to see what it's like. It means... In terms of prophecy, hold on to what is good and reject what is evil. And I know some of you get a bit uncomfortable when at times I will mention people and particular false teaching within the church. You say, don't do that. It's not nice. I'm sorry. But when someone like Steve Chalk feeds poison into the body of Christ through evangelical ministries, it would be absolutely remiss of me not to say to you, watch out. Watch out. This is poison. This will quench the spirit. Lots of things can quench the spirit. I remember in the, I don't, I don't, don't remember, but I remember listening to somebody, a minister uh, from the Church of Scotland uh, who was converted in the Lewis Revival and had a fine ministry for many, many years being asked about why didn't the Lewis Revival spread to other parts of Scotland in the 1950s and then a, a little bit in the 1970s. And his answer was very revealing. He said, I, believed, he said, I believe that we quench the spirit. He says, I believe we, came, we became very proud and we quench the spirit. Well, we have the word of God and we teach the word of God. And anyone comes and no matter their personality or the ability, fruit that comes with them or the programs that they offer, we need to test them and test everything and say nah, are you you sticking with God's word or not hold on to the good, reject the evil, so we want to be a spirit filled church we seek to rejoice, we pray continually, we give thanks in all circumstances, we do not quench the spirit and we do not despise or treat with contempt those who bring the word of God to us one other um, story and then we'll just uh, finish with uh, one other application what do you do with somebody who comes and says God has told me this you know, and it's quite poor Joni Erickson Tadder. Remember the lady who had the accident, Joni and so on? She had nine men come to her and say that God has told, had told them to marry her. Well, eight of them were wrong. You know, I mean, the, the God has told me line all the time. I just think, I, I love Spurgeon's thing. This is my favorite story on that line. When Spurgeon, a man came up to her and said, Mr. Spurgeon, uh, God has told me that I have to preach in your church on Sunday. And Spurgeon said, Great! When he tells me, I'll let you. That's what you do with people who say God has told them. We can have things happen within us and within our own lives and things that we can be very strongly conscious of God is guiding us. I've, I've had that in my own life and sometimes it's been right. But I tell you, the two times that it's been wrong when I was absolutely certain that God was guiding a particular way and it was wrong, that's a really humbling thing. And it, it's, it makes you question and you should question, but not God, yourself. It's best just to stick with his word. Stick with the word. That's the absolute sure and certain. So, how do we apply this? I think we apply it in terms of Psalm 51. Where David, who having committed adultery and murder. And hidden it away, really. And even within his own heart, being able to live with himself. Being able to go to the temple. Being able to do all the things outwardly. Was confronted with his sin. And the spirit convicted him. And what did he say? He said, cleanse me and forgive me. Wash away all my sin. Well, we pray that, don't we? But then in that psalm, he has this beautiful phrase, let me hear joy and gladness. Not just forgive me, but let me hear joy and gladness. Create in me a pure heart. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. There are some of you here who are spiritually asleep and basically you're spiritually dead. Yeah, you believe in Jesus and you can identify the time when you were converted. But you've been running on empty for months, if not years. You don't know the joy of the Lord. The fruit that you are showing is painted. It's external. It's nothing heart. And the temptation is... One, just to give up. Two, to carry on faking it. Three, maybe, to despair. Well, our God is gracious. And you pray with David, cleanse me, forgive me, wash away all my sin. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. If you are a Christian and that's your condition and you pray, I have no doubt at all that God answers that as much as if you are not a Christian and you pray for God to enter your life. Because here's the thing it's the cost and joy. The way to joy is through the sacrifice of a broken and contrite heart. Ironically, my pride and arrogance keep me from joy. My self absorption keeps me from joy. My rightness and correctness and everything else keeps me from joy, and it will keep you from joy. The way to joy, it's such a paradox. The way to joy is through a broken heart and a broken spirit. And that's why some of you who are the most discouraged and down at the moment, in some ways, do you know this? You are nearer to joy than the person who's effervescent and bubbling around and everything's wonderful. It's it's such a paradox, isn't it? It's such a strange thing. But it's such a wonderful and beautiful thing. Before Sinclair came here, I heard him speak at Creef. And I just remember being so bonded with him because he said that he thought there were two things that were really missing from the church in Scotland. One was conversions. When did the church last grow because of conversions? And the other was the joy. And I, I think that's true. And I'm thankful for what we have in this place, and I hope whichever church you're from, you're from Grace Church, may God grant you that in, in your church as well. But it's not enough. We need more um, joy and, and we, we need more of Christ. And we must not quench the Holy Spirit. If you're going to pray anything, just pray, Lord, don't let me put out the Spirit's fire. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. We confess our sin in so many ways. The ingratitude. The lack of prayerfulness. The self-absorption which takes joy away from us. And we confess that so often we treat your word with with contempt. We treat it like our word. Or the words of other people. We do not listen to what you say. And when we do listen, we do not do. So help us instead. To be those who fear you, who love you, and who hear you and obey you. And help us to know your joy in all of that. And it amazes us and causes us to wonder that your purpose for us is joy and peace and righteousness in the Lord. Grant it to each one of us. In your name. Amen. We're going to finish by singing a song that I hope is true of us. And if, if, as we sing it, it's not true, just make it, do it as your prayer. May my heart be filled with thankfulness to him who bore my pain. Let's stand and sing and then please remain standing for the benediction.